Undoubtedly, you've heard that leading change is about highlighting a problem, deciding on a clear vision, and then cascading that vision down. If that language sounds familiar and you've used those tactics, as have I, there's a yes and in the conversation you're about to hear. In this episode, what to add in in order to lead better in a world of continuous change. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 649. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders are born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us are handling change, and not only are we handling change, we're handling it continuously. It always begs the question, how do we do a better job of being able to motivate and inspire through change and being able to look at things from the big picture? Today, I am so glad to welcome a guest who absolutely is an expert on this, is going to help us to be able to look at things through the lens of digital transformation, but just as importantly, how do we think about the people side of that? I'm so pleased to introduce to you David Rogers. He's the world's leading expert on digital transformation, a member of the faculty at Columbia Business School, and the author of five books. His previous landmark bestseller, The Digital Transformation Playbook, was the first book on digital transformation and put the topic on the map. Now published in 13 languages, it defined the discipline by arguing that digital transformation is not about technology, it's about strategy, leadership, and new ways of thinking. David has helped companies around the world transform their businesses for the digital age, working with senior leaders at many of the largest corporations, and he's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and The Economist. At Columbia Business School, he is the faculty director of executive education programs on digital business strategy and on leading digital transformation. He's taught over 25,000 executives through his programs. In his newest book, The Digital Transformation Roadmap, David tackles the barriers behind the 70% of businesses that fail in their own digital efforts and offers a five-step roadmap to rebuild any organization for continuous change. David, what a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Dave. I'm really delighted to be on your podcast. You're 600 and some of a uh, guest. It's been an amazing run, and I'm glad to add my my piece to it. I am so glad to add your voice to the 600-some conversations we've had, because this is such an important conversation. And as I mentioned yeah. in the intro, you mentioned this in your first book. You repeated in this book, I'm quoting you, digital transformation is not about technology. It's about strategy, leadership, and new ways of thinking. Oftentimes, we do think about this through the lens of technology, especially these days when we're thinking about change, but it's a much bigger picture than that. And it really requires us to look at the people side, doesn't it? Absolutely. Digital transformation has to start with people and it has to end with people. It starts with people because you're a business and you're there to serve customers. And any digital transformation this doesn't start from the point of view of how are we solving problems for customers? How are we creating value for our customers? is going to go, go nowhere. And it's also going to go nowhere if you don't think about who are the people who are going to make this change happen, right? I've seen so many organizations start out, they see new technologies or they new capabilities and they get all excited and they say, wow, what can we do with our company? We need to bring in some of this good stuff right now. It was just last week at a big festival, innovation festival led by a fast company. And of course, they wanted to hear about generative AI and 
understandably, there's excitement. But if you start with a technology, you are immediately off on the wrong course. It starts with what does this mean to our business? How do we actually create opportunities for a business? How do we create value with our business? And that is all about people. And it is not going to happen because these things do require change. There is such an incredible pace of evolution happening with each sort of wave of technology. That is why I talk about digital transformation is really about the pace of change that we're experiencing and how can an organization actually orient itself around that? How do we rebuild our organizations to manage that and not just be sort of buffeted and knocked around by it, but to seize it and to jump into it and, and to be able to move at that speed? And that is all about people. It is all about leadership. It's all about really redesigning the way we work from top to bottom of every level of whatever organization we're in. I think many of us have heard the statistics over the years on change efforts in organizations and how many of them fail. And digital yeah. transformations, for better or worse, are no different in that. It's that, the same pattern. That pattern, yeah. <laughs> and so um, there's so many practical things you highlight in the book that I think really I walked away with thinking like, wow, you know, I'd really think about doing this differently. And case in point, one of the things that I was always taught is sell the problem. Like when you have a vision, like first talk about the mm -hmm. problem, as in talk about what's not working in order to motivate people to change. And you call that negative urgency. But the interesting yeah. thing I thought, that you added to this is you say it's not sufficient without positive urgency. Tell me yeah. about both of those and the distinction between them. Right, right. So this was this is a real learning experience for me, seeing where change failed in many, many organizations. There's this common phrase, and when you're talking about responding to change and creating urgency within your employees, and people will say, you've got to find your burning platform. Right. right. This is this metaphor yeah. for what I would call negative urgency, right? This message that, hey, we're in trouble, right? The sky is falling. The disruptors are just around the corner. We, we're we're, we're going to get wiped out if we don't get this right. This is very common, of course, when you're talking about digital change in established sectors. And so there was this idea, which is still very popular, that the thing you need is this burning platform. Now, that's kind of a weird metaphor. It actually came from a memo written by a CEO, Stephen Elop, when he was the CEO of Nokia. And he was trying to rally the troops for change, saying, we've got to move faster. We've got to drive change. And the message was, our, we've been the, the big player, the, the legacy, the incumbent uh, in mobile phones, and yet we are having our lunch eaten, or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> by first Apple's iPhone, which had arrived and was going from kind of a niche product to rapidly scaling in the market. And then now Android was starting to come in and saying, hey, we're going to come after the, the cheaper, the lower end of the market, so to speak. And so he wrote this memo and he had this metaphor of a like an oil rig at sea that's caught fire and it's an all hands on deck sort of crisis moment. That's where the phrase burning platform actually comes from. Huh. Right? So it's interesting to know the history of this phrase because guess what? Right. Guess that what? was yeah. the quintessential <laughs> negative urgency. That memo and all the speeches that followed from Stephen Elop. Did Nokia succeed? Were they able to break through the inertia of the organization and the bureaucracy and the structure and move beyond their core business and respond to this dramatic change in the environment? No, right? <laughs> they completely failed. 
right? They had to sell off, leave the mobile phone business entirely that they had been the, the global leader in just a few short years before. So that is a real lesson to us that negative urgency is not enough by itself, right? And I've seen this in many industries where I come in and I'd be dealing with a, 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 a established player and they're pointing to a current or potential disruptor, like say an Amazon. And all they're talking about is if we don't change fast enough, Amazon's going to take us out of business or eat our lunch. That is not enough. What you need is to, obviously, if there are threats, it is important to spell them out, to, to recognize them and underline them. But you have to pair that with what I call positive urgency, right? And mm -hmm. what that is, is a vision of how change or of how transformation can create new value, can unlock new growth, can solve new problems, can make a difference in the world. What's Who's doing that well? Like when you think of examples in the past where it's not just been the negative urgency, but there's been that positive message. Sure. I mean, I, I see this, for example, automotive sector is obviously going through tremendous change right now. One of the companies where I've seen this and a leader I've seen do this well is in Ford Motor and Bill Ford, who's been their chairman for, for several years now, really laying out a very clear vision of the future for the company. And when he has done this, he roots it in the history of the company, right? Not just about Tesla and Rivian and the latest battery technologies and so forth and what's coming out of China, but also talking about, you know, what's the history of this company? Where What has Ford done and what are we trying to achieve for the future? And he talks about, in his case, he really spells the impact they're trying to achieve. He talks about two things. He talks about solving the needs for mobility and environmental sustainability right? It says, we've got to get these two things right. We have to figure out how to create more and more mobility uh, uh, services and capability and, and bring it to the lives of people around the world in a planet that is not staying put, right? That is increasingly urbanizing and growing and, and scale and, 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 and affluence in, in many developing markets around the world. Despite all that change, how do we how do we keep bringing a mobility to keep people and services and economies and and, and businesses moving while meeting the needs and the, and the constraints around uh, in our environmental future? Right. So it's really saying, hey, you have a job here. This is not about protecting, or it's not only about protecting Ford Motor as a corporation, right, for its shareholders. This is also about, and he roots it in history. His great grandfather Henry Ford and and the original vision of, of of that mobility ties to freedom and to progress and said, look, we are safeguarding these core values for the next generation. We have a chance to really make a difference in the world on the, on these two fronts. So that's that's one example of a company that I see has really tied this man, massive change that they are going through. And obviously there are threats and the risks of inaction, but they don't, he doesn't frame it. A good leader doesn't frame it about that first. They talk primarily, I see, about what is the potential? What are we going to be able to do and unlock and create and bring to the world if we get this right? Huh. It's so interesting you mentioned Ford because my wife and I bought a Ford Mach-E earlier this year. And mm. if you had asked me two or three years ago what was going to be your next car, in a million yeah. years, I would not have said Ford. And <laughs> and for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. And yet the vision that they've cast over many years, starting yeah. with him and successive CEOs, yeah. has like caught the attention of some of us and like, oh, well, well, actually, I would think about this through the products they've then produced and all that. And it's just interesting like how 
even though I don't have any connection to them or wouldn't have thought about it. Like the power of looking at things through positive urgency can really get piece, people's attention and really be sustainable over time. Well, there's this there's this another incredibly common myth is that people don't like change, right? I hear this all the time. I'm talking with leaders and they're trying to make change happen in their organizations. They say, well, the problem is people just don't like change. It's like human nature. And so my employees are resistant and that's why it's so hard. And that's just not true, right? We have seen, we have learned, particularly through the last few years and, and, and with the, the arrival of the pandemic, once again, the lesson that humans are incredibly capable of change. We are incredibly elastic. We are able to change our behaviors overnight when we truly understand the reason why, mm. right? Most of the time, we are not in that existential crisis, an, an unknown pandemic that we really don't understand but is lethal has just arrived overnight in our in our in our community or or or, or facing that saber-toothed tiger coming at us you know in our cave yeah most of the time we're not at that moment of absolute clarity where everyone knows why you have to change and, and what you have to do and so that's the leader's job the leader's job is to say okay why is it exactly that we must change what is the potential and you need to tap into what psychologists would describe two kinds of motivation, right? You need to satisfy both extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation, right? And this comes from how do you motivate children and students and employees and so forth. And extrinsic motivation is things like getting your paycheck or your allowance as a child or, or whatever it is, sort of that direct compensation or reward. Intrinsic motivation is the idea that the, the student, the child, the employee is, is, is motivated because of the work itself that they find learning exciting, that they enjoy being on the team and 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 push and work getting up early and working so hard to train and, and so forth and help their their teammates do better at the next athletic event, et cetera. That, 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 that is what we call intrinsic motivation. It turns out you need both for organizations, right? So if you're mm -hmm. going to try to get an organization to really change and stretch beyond its core business and reallocate resources and develop new skills and reorganize, it's really hard and people need to be motivated. You need to make the case extrinsic motivation that's that's ROI right what's the cost savings or the new profit what's how how's this going to impact your EBITDA right things like that guess what shareholders need to know that right if you're a public company your CFO needs to know that whether you're a public or private company there there are stakeholders who need to know okay how is all this going to actually pay off in the end but that's not enough right i see companies who just talk about that and guess what the average employee is not motivated to learn new skills and change their job and, and and a lot of things that they've been doing for some time just because it's going to make an impact on, on the next quarterly earnings statement. They want that. They need that intrinsic motivation, right? Again, that's back to the example of Bill Ford. Like, what is this doing for the customer? How is this impacting the world? How am I making a difference? One aspect of a shared vision you highlight is something you call a North Star impact. Mm -hmm. What is it? And What's critical about it? Sure. So I, I lay out in the in this part of the book really sort of four elements of any shared vision, and kind of two of them correspond to the point I just made about extrinsic and, and intrinsic motivation. So one is called the business theory. That's the extrinsic motivation. That's answers the question: How do you expect to capture value and recover the investments that you are making uh, for the future in this change effort, this digital transformation, if that's what it is. The North Star impact is about that, really getting specific about that 
impact you're going to have, that intrinsic motivation. How is this going to make the world a better place for our customers, et cetera, right? So Ford Motor, again, I gave the example that's about that meeting the environment, environmental and mobility needs, right, of this growing urbanizing planet. For MasterCard, they are focused on not just sort of products and services. Well, we're a credit card network. They've really reimagined themselves in the digital era, and it's really about how are we going to power and protect secure commerce in the digital world across all these devices and partners and platforms, right? Some of them may be more, I don't know, I, I may have less grandiose, if you will. Domino's Pizza, I think, has done an amazing job because they've been really focused as they think about you know, new digital business models and experiences for customers and everything. Their, their impact, it's really just about that incredible, that experience, the they want to create the ultimate order and delivery experience for today's digitally connected consumers of, of pizza and the other food that they sell. So everything they're doing is thinking about how does this make a greater, a better experience for that customer. And then, of course, you have and you have nonprofits or companies like the New York Times. It's a for-profit company, but very mission-driven, where they're thinking about what's the impact we're seeking to have in the world. New York Times has been an incredible example of, of digital transformation, partly because they got a lot of things wrong for many years before they really started to pull together and align people and make the real change happen. And part of that was really rooting this in how do we protect our journalistic mission? How do we ensure that we're going to be able to af afford financially with resources to do the kind of investigative reporting and shedding light on what's happening in the halls of government and so forth, that the sort of mission that has driven them for, for, for decades hey, how do we make sure we can actually still do this 10 years from now, right? How do we shore up as the old business model is kind of crumbling beneath our feet, make sure that we can still afford uh, the newsroom we have so that we can continue to play the role that we do in, in democratic discourse. Mm. All of these are examples, different companies, but really being clear about an impact. What is the impact we're seeking to have, right? What is the outcome or the impact? And then I call it a North Star impact because- this is defining an impact that that as you get clarity around it, that will keep guiding your actions and your initiatives, not just sort of inspiring and motivating, but also helping you sort of judge, hey, are we really making progress towards that outcome, towards that impact? So that's the metaphor of a North Star that you keep looking to sort of directionally to keep you aligned and moving in that direction of the impact you want to have. Yeah. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about the distinction you highlight in your work of the why versus the what, and so yes. often vision, quote unquote visions end up being about the what. But the things that you just said are really more about the bigger picture why. That that's really a key distinction here, isn't it? It's 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 really critical. You've got to parse those out and know which question you're trying to ask. And when you're talking about a vision, and when you're talking about uh, defining your north star impact, that is all about the why right? Why are we doing this? It's a statement and getting clarity about what you hope to achieve, not what you hope to do, right? And the reason is, in the world we're in, it is so dynamic, it is so disruptive, it is so constantly changing. The what is going to be much more flexible. I've some of the smartest leaders I know when I ask them who, what they look for when they're hiring people, they, one of the traits I hear is they're looking for folks who are comfortable with ambiguity. Because the what, what are we doing, 
may change between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., right? right? Things suddenly change in the context of the environment, regulation, competition, customers, et cetera. You adapt, you learn, you try something. It's not working in the market. You've got to have that agility around the what and being able to look at, again, starting from the why, knowing the outcome you want to achieve, and then having the mindset, the humility among leaders that we don't know and we are never going to know from the outset the right way to get there, right? And so what we should be thinking about is what are some different ways we think might get us there? And then how do we sort of allocate and align and put together teams and people, smart people working together in collaborative fashion to start to try some of these what's, if you will, the things to do, and then figure out which ones hopefully are going to make an impact and achieve that impact, you know, help us move towards that goal. So we need to be much more flexible on the solution, but we need to be really carefully and thoughtfully aligned on the problems we're solving or the outcomes we're hoping to achieve. Yeah. And and speaking of outcomes and impact, I mean, whether it's a for-profit, a nonprofit, a government agency, I mean, measurement, like thinking about success is, is key on this too, of yeah. what are the things we're measuring. And I highlighted these couple lines you wrote that really jumped out at me as I was reading. Mm. You say, I've long held that the most important part of measurement is engaging in a thoughtful debate about what your metrics should be. Done right, this process brings about strategic alignment and employee empowerment. You will have already reaped 90% of the benefit of your metrics before you even track anything. I'm thinking back to what we talked about earlier of it's not about the technology per se, or maybe in this case, even the numbers. It's about, in this case, the alignment, the conversation around it, it sounds like. Absolutely. And that, that's been a real kind of also, again, a sort of a learning experience for me is realizing what really matters in measurement and metrics. And it's not what we so commonly think. This this kind of old school idea, well, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. It's metrics are there to keep an eye on folks and sort of know what's going on and keep people in line. Uh, Yes, there are certain metrics you're going to use around safety of products and so forth. There's going to be a time where the value of a metric may be in sort of being an early warning signal or sort of keeping track of, of, of processes in a distributed organization. But by and large, the real power, the most important power of measurement is in that alignment. It's in the conversations that we have. If we don't just take the metrics as given quarter after quarter, well, these are our KPIs. This is our business. This is what we always use. What you want instead is a process where at every level of the organization, As you define what you're trying to achieve, right, again, the impact, then you ask yourselves, what are some metrics, some quantitative metrics, right, which may not capture everything, but they are going to be strong indicators that we are achieving that impact or we're moving towards that outcome, right? And this is a process you actually want to engage everyone in, right? At each level of the business, they need to think about, okay, for our little piece over here, we're the marketing team supporting a given distribution channel, or we are the supply chain team, or we're the HR team who's responsible for training and retraining our current employees rather than hiring others. Whatever your job is, right? Okay. You need to be engaged in this thinking about what are we trying to achieve here, right? What are the higher order goals we are supporting? What What's the outcome that we can deliver that's going to push that our company, our part of the company forward towards that? And how would we measure that, 
Right. And guess what? That process, getting people involved in that debate and really figuring out what are we trying to achieve? How are we going to measure it? Okay, then then you go ahead and measure it, right? It is, is helpful once you've spelled out that metric and, and that's motivating because you say, hey, we've made a difference on that number from here versus where we were X many weeks or months ago. But actually, the most important part is aligning people together and getting that clarity of what they're trying to achieve. And then the other thing is that allows you to empower the employees to a much greater degree because once there's that clarity of what are we trying to do, how are we measuring it, then people can be accountable. And when people can be accountable, then they can act with autonomy, right? The two must go together. Only when people have this shared, understood accountability, then you can say, you know what? I'm going to push a lot more decision-making down to you, to your team. You're on the front line. You're interacting with the customer. You're solving the supply chain issue every single day, whatever it is. You can now have more decision-making rights around that because we've come to an understanding of what success looks like. Yeah, and it it just it's such an interesting thought to like get out of our traditional mindset of like we think about vision as coming from the top, which which is true, mm-hmm. but it's also it's a it's a it's a and also mm-hmm. it's at every level of the organization. And part of what I hear yeah. you saying is if you want people to have ownership over this and really move on it and embrace it. The term uses vision at every level, right? It's not just yeah. about something coming from the top. Exactly. And so so every level of the organization needs to define its own vision that is, again, in support of rooted starts from the higher order vision of the organization, right? You have to understand what is Ford Motor overall? What is it trying to achieve if then you're in a particular line of business or you're at a particular business function? But then you have to translate that, right? You have to translate it yourself at your own level. Okay, what does that mean for us? Our vision of what we are achieving right now in this part of the organization that is going to support that. And you define the impact you're trying to achieve and you define the measurements and the metrics around that. And that is what empowers people. And that is what allows organizations to move quickly at scale, which is so essential today. I love that you make a distinction between cascading up and cascading Mm -hmm. down. And you write, the difference between cascading down and cascading up is the conversation that happens at each juncture. I was thinking about that of how often I have heard someone say, okay, we're going to cascade this down. Like they literally use that that phrase. And (laughs) what's different about those two things? I mean, guess two questions, like what's different about cascading up and cascading down? And then you mentioned the conversations that happen. Like, yeah, tell me more about that. So, yeah, and once you start looking at vision, this this sort of immediately started coming up in my work with with advising executives was they started to get this clarity on okay, these different pieces that go into the the four elements I talk about of of, of well defined shared vision, and they say okay, great, so now we're going to go through, we're going to do the hard work, we'll figure this out, and then we'll cascade it down to the rest of the organization, right? Uh, and I realized. No, <laughs> you completely are missing the point, or you're missing maybe the critical point of how this actually works. So cascading down, of course, is the, the top leader comes up with a plan or a vision, and then they tell their next reports below them, right? Here's the thing. And they tell the folks below them, and they tell the folks below them. That's the whole metaphor, sort of like water cascading down through a waterfall. Yeah. And that is not what I have seen in companies that really a drive change effectively. And it's a subtle difference, but it's what I call cascading up. So the difference is simply what happens at each juncture in that conversation between one level and the next, 
right? So again, the classic top-down conversation, the leader says, this is my goal. This is the objective I've been given or, or set for the year. And then they tell the direct reports, okay, the four of you are each doing different parts of, of supporting me in different ways. Here's what I need each of you to do, right? Well, you're in charge of marketing. I need you to do this. You're in charge of project management. I need you to do this. You're in charge of something else. I need you to do that this, this, this year, this quarter for me. What happens instead when you're cascading up is the leader says, this is my goal, right? This is the impact I'm trying to achieve. And then they turn to their direct reports and they ask them. They don't tell them. They ask them, what do you think you should do to support this, right? Uh. Now it is their responsibility to come up with ideas, right? Well, seems to me the best way I could support that, given my area is, I don't know, digital marketing, I think I should work on X right now. And then the leader still has to sign off on this, right? The leader has to agree. You have to come to, to agreement on this, but it is the responsibility of each person, each leader at every level of the organization to define their own work, to propose what it should be, and then come up with that agreement. And I, I've seen just one concrete example. So at YouTube, in its relatively early days, they were really trying to drive growth, and they set this incredibly wildly ambitious goal. They were going to grow the number of hours watched per day by 10x, tenfold in, in a couple of years. That was the thought. And guess what? The leader, Susan Wojcicki, didn't go to everyone and tell the engineers and the marketing team and the UX designers and so forth, so here's all the things you need to do to help this happen. No, she said, this is the goal. We have to grow 10x. Everyone's like, gulp, okay. And then she said, you need to figure out what your what's your piece of the puzzle, right? And some of the network engineers started thinking about, okay, how do we redesign the data centers for throughput? You had people who were working on the UX who were saying, okay, how do we create a simpler interface so that you can cast, as we call it now, from your phone to your television screen, right? So that you're not just watching YouTube on your phone, but you're even when you're sitting down in front of the TV, you might be watching YouTube. We had others thinking about, okay, what are the kinds of content we want to be seeding or inviting creators to create? Maybe we should start creating virtual reality videos or gaming videos. So you had all these different parts of the organization. They were each figuring out what are we going to do? What could we do that's going to contribute to this, feed up to this overall goal? It's not that the leader says, here's my goal. Here's your marching orders. When you see folks who have been maybe doing it kind of the traditional way of like, okay, here's the marching orders, and they are able to shift, what is it that the leaders in that organization do that get them over that obstacle a bit? Honestly, it does sometimes take a change in leadership at the top of whatever the business unit, the function, or maybe even the company, whatever we're talking about, because I find the, the higher up you are, the more reasons you have to not change. Yeah. When I see companies making bigger, real change in them, and I ask the questions about where have you seen turnover, the higher percentage of turnover is usually in the more senior ranks. And this is for a few reasons. I think primarily people who have who have reached a certain level of success or authority, rank within an organization, sometimes feel they're entitled not to change. They misperceive. They think that this is giving up power by empowering those below them, giving more decisions to those below them that they are no longer leading, right? Suddenly, leadership is not about making all the decisions. And so that feels like they're being asked to give up authority. In fact, they're not. It's a redefinition of what leadership is and what the jobs of leaders are. So 
I, I would say it is not uncommon that this change really happens when someone is brought in to help lead a team, a unit of a function in a different direction. Sometimes it's folks who have been there, and then you have others who see it modeled. Maybe they haven't, they don't, don't have that experience, but they see someone else in another part of the organization really bringing a different approach, and they start to to recognize, hey, you know what? That's not so bad after all. Some of the companies I've seen, Johnson & Johnson is one example, a, a former student of mine helped lead their whole HR function of their whole technology division, which is like over 2,000 people. And she said, we started with those who are most desperate, right? <laughs> so they found the leader of a division that was struggling, not hitting their numbers, really in trouble. And they had these ideas about how you're going to organize teams differently and sort of work differently. And they said, hey, would you like a... They, even there, they didn't say, you're in trouble, you've got to do what we said. They said, hey, we would like to support you. Would you be open to really bringing in some different processes, changing the way you're doing your work? And we'd like to support it if you, if you want to. And they said, yeah, okay. And they explained the payoff. They said, look, if you do this right, you should be able to move faster, bring new products to market more quickly, waste less resources on the process. And they said, well, that's what we need desperately right now. So they said, yeah, we're game. We're going to try something different. Once the, And then they, they flooded them with support resources, just show them how to do and how to operate differently. And then they were able to actually bring new things to the market that started to succeed in an impressively short order of time. And guess what? Then other parts of the organization started to say, hey, could you help us out too? Could we get some of that that good stuff? <laughs> HR team, could you help show us kind of what you did with that division uh, to help them start to achieve those results? And so that's that's the other thing I see is that it's not that you have to change everyone and the hearts and the minds and the ways of thinking of everyone in the organization from day one. It's you find the places, the people that, that, that are ready to really try something different or are already just waiting for permission very often to embrace this different kind of way of working. And when you give them the permission and if need be, give them the, the support or resources or training and they start to do it, then success attracts others and it creates a sort of gravitational field. And all of a sudden, the folks who are sort of on the fence suddenly start saying, yeah, me next. What can I, can I, can I embrace this? And those who were kind of resistant start to get on the fence and say, well, maybe this isn't all bad. I, I guess I would consider this. And so you have this kind of ripple effect. David Rogers is the author of The Digital Transformation Roadmap, Rebuild Your Organization for Continuous Change. David, thank you so much for your work. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 476, How to Pivot Quickly. Steve Blank was my guest on that episode. He's the father of the lean startup movement. We talked about the importance of a minimum viable product or service. And in that conversation, we explored what that looks like. And David mentions in his book as well the tendency for a lot of leaders to overplan, overstrategize, try to get everything perfect, and not spend enough time talking to stakeholders, trying things out, testing things. Steve echoes that message in episode 476, a roadmap for you, especially if you find yourself in a place where maybe you do need to pivot. Perhaps you'd need to pivot quickly, a roadmap for how to do that. I'd also recommend episode 571, Engaging People Through Change. Cassandra Worthy was my guest on that episode. She talked all about the people aspects of change. Of course, so much about change 
is the people, is the emotion, is the things we're struggling with. And one of the invitations she makes in that conversation is that change is happening for you, not just to you. She expands on that a lot, so much energy and enthusiasm in her work, episode 571 for that. And then finally, I'd recommend the work of Renee Maborn, who was recently on episode 641, Doing Better Than Zero-Sum Thinking. Renee, the co-author of the very popular Blue Ocean Strategy book and series of books, we talked in that conversation about the tendency for many of us to think about win-lose, competition, and we can actually do way better than that. In fact, not only can we do way better than that, there's so many examples of organizations who are going way beyond zero-sum thinking these days, and if thinking about change and strategy is top of your mind right now, that's a must-listen episode, episode 641. All of those episodes you can find on the Coaching for Leaders Dot com website. If you haven't done so before, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That'll give you access to the entire library that I've aired since 2011, searchable by topic, and organizational change is one of those topic areas. Strategy is another one. This episode's going to be filed under both, but there's many other episodes there that will help support you in your journey forward on this, in addition to the related episodes I just mentioned. Once you start your free membership, you'll also get access to all the other benefits inside, including my weekly leadership guide, access to all my interview notes, highlights, so much more inside of the free membership, coachingforleaders.com for that. I was talking with someone last week, and they asked me, how do you make money on ads and sponsorships on your podcast? I don't ever hear any. I said, well, that's because we don't. 99% of the revenue for Coaching for Leaders every year comes from our members. We're almost entirely member-supported. That's intentional because members are the work that I'm doing. It's about leadership development, the business I'm in, not running an advertising or sponsorship business. And that's one of the reasons that I'm inviting you to think about what can you do next for your leadership development. And if that is a question you're asking right now, you may want to look at Coaching for Leaders Plus. In addition to all the resources already inside the free membership, Coaching for Leaders Plus invites you to take a next step on really supporting your leadership development. And one of the resources inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus is a monthly article from me, a long-form article with some of my thinking on integrating the experts, some practical steps you can take, more from my own experience and journey that will help you to move forward. It's one of the three key benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. If you'd like to find out more, go over to coachingforleaders.plus. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Priest. I will be back next week for our next conversation. Hope you have a wonderful week, and I'll see you back on Monday.